Thank you, Father, so much for hearing these prayers. Thank you for inviting us to be still and to know that you are God. Thank you so much for the power of your word, the way that it can shape and transform our hearts and our lives. And we pray that we be drawn closer to you as we learn a little bit more about you and your loving character. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Deborah was there in her house, and as she looked out, she saw one of the most astonishing scenes walking down the street. She lived in Philadelphia, and there she was looking out on her street that passed in front of her home, and she saw this guy come walking past, and you would, you would laugh too, I'd, I'd imagine, if you saw this man. He had his, his uh, pockets stuffed with socks. Everything that he owned, all of his clothes were stuffed into different parts of his clothing so that he could carry them. And then he had three loaves of bread. One loaf under each arm and one loaf he was eating. I don't know how exactly one does that, but he was walking down the street with two loaves of bread, under, one under each arm, and eating the third loaf of bread. Now, as Deborah looked at him, she judged him uh, for the way that he appeared. And often that we do that, we look at somebody and we think, man, look at that person, look at who in the world are they? But that man who was walking past actually happened to be Benjamin Franklin. And Deborah actually ended up being a part of the home that boarded Benjamin Franklin. And within six months... Deborah was engaged to be married to Benjamin Franklin. We have to be careful about what we assume when we look at people, when we see people, what we assume about them. That's what uh, I learned from the Bible. And, and this Thanksgiving, I am thankful for something that we often don't think about being thankful for, and that is the judgment. Are you thankful for the judgment this morning? I am thankful for the judgment. I want you to turn in your Bibles, before we put something up on the screen, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Over the past few months, we've focused intentionally on the three angels' messages as revealed in the life and story of Abraham. And Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 says this, Then I saw, this is the first angel, another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and springs of water. Is a God who is a judge worthy of worship? Sometimes when we think about judgment, we think about penalties that are inflicted on us. We think about hard times coming into our lives, and we think about uh, sometimes a system that is completely unfair. But today, as we think about the hour of judgment that we are told that we are living in, I want you to look at a story in the life of Abraham. You remember that Abraham was called out of Ur, which is where Babylon later was established. It's where the Tower of Babel was. So he's called out of Babylon, just like we're, we're told in Revelation that we are called out of Babylon. He's called out of there and he lives in Canaan. And as he's living there, we've gone through various stories. And the most recent story, uh, we looked at how after having made the terrible choice of choosing Sarah, uh, uh, choosing Hagar to, to be his, his maid in order to have a child, Ishmael, through it, um, he is 
God shows up and says, look, that's not the plan. It's not through Ishmael, but he chooses to bless Ishmael anyway. And then he gives to Abraham the sign of the covenant, which I've heard some people say it could actually be the ouch of the covenant um, because it's circumcision. And he and he's an old man and he, at 99 years, he's circumcised. And we talked about how in the Bible, it's represented that circumcision of the heart is what we're called to experience. That, that wounding, that recognition that what we need is what God alone can do for us. Abraham needed to recognize that it wasn't through his prowess, through his potence, but through his, um, his, his impotence that God's omnipotence would be revealed. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. It was through his impotence that God's omnipotence could be revealed. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, the very next chapter in Genesis. And, and just keep this in mind. Here is an old man. He is 99 years old. He has very recently been circumcised, which is a very painful process that we learn later on made men very weak and able to be overcome. And in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1, we pick up the story and it says this. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So here is 99-year-old Abraham. He's sitting there in the tent door. It's When is it that he's sitting there? It's in the heat of the day, which in the Middle East, this is a, a very hot time of day when they didn't go out to do their normal work. In fact, at this time, they would often have a siesta. They'd have a nap. But he's not napping. He's sitting there in the door of his tent. It's the hot time of the day when everybody is supposed to be resting. And verse 2 says this, So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, so suddenly he sees these strangers, and this wasn't all that common. He lived outside of cities. He sees these three men, and when he sees them, notice the action verbs that are used in describing what Abraham goes to do. So he lifts up his eyes, he sees these three men, and when he sees them, notice what it says. When he saw them, he what? He ran from the tent. This is a 99-year-old man who has just been circumcised, and he is running to three strangers. Okay, are you getting the picture? Have you seen a 99-year-old man run before? Maybe some of you have. I haven't. All right. So he's 99 and he ran from the tent door to meet them. And then he bows himself to the ground. He's 99 years old. He's running. He's bowing himself to the ground to these three complete strangers. We're talking about judgment this morning. How do I judge the people that I see around them? And how... Do I treat them? He runs to them. He bows before them. And verse 3 says, And he said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So he speaks to one of them, the one that's apparently the leader. And he says, My Lord, uh, if, if, if you would favor me, don't pass me by. Three complete strangers. He's being inconvenienced. He's running out of his tent in the heat of the day. And he says, look, please don't, don't, don't keep on going. But verse four, please let a little water, just, just a little bit of water be brought to you and wash your feet and rest yourselves under, under the tree here. So just, just, just spend some time here with me. And then I'm going to go and I says, I will bring a morsel, a, a tiny little tidbit of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. 
Wow! Can you imagine what it would be like if we treated strangers in our lives like that? Can you imagine what it would have been like if Deborah had treated Benjamin Franklin like that when he was walking past? If she had run out and immediately... Uh, maybe they would have gotten married a whole lot faster. I don't know. But she's saying, he, he's saying, I'm, a, I, I'm like a servant to you. You are, you are a Lord. And he's, he's, he wants to find favor in these people's eyes. Then verse 5, they said, do as you have said. Now notice what he does. He said, I'm going to get a little water, a morsel of bread, and you refresh yourselves under the tree. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. He's like, let's take the finest flour, the flour that we've refined and we've made it really nice. Take that fine flour, make three cakes of of bread for them, knead it and make fresh bread for them, not just a morsel that we found somewhere uh, sitting in our tent, but take these delicious, freshly baked cakes. And then verse 7 continues, and Abraham, what did he do? (laughs) You see the point that's trying to be made here. Abraham is going above and beyond. Abraham is being ambitious and, and excited about his hospitality to these men. Abraham ran to the herd, and he took a tender and good calf. So I had to do a little research about exactly uh, what, what it's like to eat a calf. I guess it's called veal. I've never, never actually had this before. But apparently it's really expensive and really uh, exquisite. I, I tried to look on the menus of local steakhouses and didn't find much veal available, except for like veal of the li- liver of a veal. And that doesn't seem that appetizing to me. But anyway, he took a tender and good calf. He gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. He's like, hurry, make this calf. He went and found the best young fat calf, a good calf there, tender calf. And he said, prepare this exquisite meal, this huge exquisite meal for my guests. And then verse 8, so he took butter. And the word there for butter is really like curds of milk, which is to this day for the Arabs is an exquisite a gourmet treat that they can only have on really special occasions. So he takes these curds of milk and milk and the calf which he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Wow! Here is a 99-year-old man who is treating complete strangers who he does not know who they are as if they are royalty. I have to look at this and I have to say, do I treat strangers in my life like this? I mean, do I treat people that, that I'm not sure what they're up to, I'm not sure where they're going, I'm not sure what their business is. Am I this ambitious about my anxiety, about my desire to be kind to people, to be courteous to people? Notice as they, they sit there, they're eating. He just stands by, just watching in case maybe there's something else I could possibly do in order to make this, this meal better for them. They have a, a, a server who's 99 years old. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 189 says this, and I just want to pause at this in this moment. It says, if we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tenderhearted and pitiful, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is only one. So just take a moment to look around this church for a second 
And, and this is written to Seventh-day Adventist Christians saying specifically like, look, if we were more courteous, if we were more tender-hearted, if we were pitiful entering into to what people are going through, if we were pitiful for, for what people are experiencing in their lives, there would be 100 people where there is now just one. We wouldn't be able to fit them in this church is the way I read that. If, if we were more kind and tender, and, and now don't get me wrong, the, the thing that I tend to hear when somebody has first come to our church and I tell them, hey, how was your experience at our church? They'll say, wow, that was a loving church. But friends, when I read the Bible, we can become more loving. When I read the way that these people are living, we have a long ways to go in Jesus' strength. So later on, uh, after they eat the meal, verse 20 uh, tells us that then they begin to go on in another direction. And I want you to notice how the Bible compares and contrasts two stories here. So it says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very great. So he says, I hear this cry coming up from Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's a very great cry about their very great sin. Verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And remember, we looked just a couple weeks ago at the story of Hagar and how God revealed himself to Hagar as the one who sees. And, And Hagar names him, you are the God who sees me. And then, and then God says, name your child Ishmael, the God who hears. And here he's saying, I'm hearing this outcry that's coming up from Sodom and Gomorrah. And in hearing this outcry, I'm going to come down and I'm going to look carefully and see if this is really what's taking place. God is revealing how judgment takes place. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not that God has not seen already what's taking place in Sodom. But he's coming to his friend Abraham and he's saying, here's how I deal with the human race. Here's how close I come in order to enter into their experience and to see what's really going on. He's, he's using human language to help us to grasp what he does. And so we continue on and we see this next story in verse 1. Now we'll see a lot of similarities and we'll see a lot of differences. It says, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Okay, so he doesn't have a tent, but he has the, the city gate, which is where the business took place, where affairs were judged, and he's sitting there in the city gate of Sodom. And Lot sees these two strangers, the same two strangers, that, that the same two of the three strangers, which if you look at the story, uh, those two strangers were uh, two angels and the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who were there uh, that Abraham was feeding. That's why Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 says, Be uh, careful to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. That's what Abraham, unknowingly judging them as just these strangers, treating them so kindly, was actually entertaining angels. So here, again, Lot doesn't know, but now it's telling us because we know. uh, These two angels, they come up to Sodom. And when Lot saw them, notice he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He does the same exact uh, action, except for he's not running to him, but he's bowing down before these two strangers. This was a, a, a common ancient Near Eastern way to, to express 
uh, your, your kindness towards somebody that's coming. Verse 2, And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. So again, he's expressing this extravagant hospitality. Hey, turn in, come into my house, wash your feet, just stay with me tonight. Verse 3, And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. No, just just don't worry about it. We don't want to inconvenience you. We're just going to spend the night right in the middle of town, right in the middle of everybody, and it'll be fine. We'll just sleep right here. The Sodom and Gomorrah was a warm climated area. It's a a very tropical type of of climate, and it wouldn't have been that big of a deal to spend the night outside. But they say, no, we'll spend the night in the open square. But then we learn maybe why it was that Lot sat at the gate and why he was so ambitious to find strangers. Because verse 3 continues and it says this, But he insisted strongly, so they turned to him and entered into his house. He has this, this concern for the stranger's welfare. And he's like, no, you have to come into my house. Then he made them a feast, maybe uh, it's not quite as descriptive as what happened with Abraham, but he makes them a feast. He bakes unleavened bread, and they eat. So Lot, again, is expressing hospitality. Verse 4, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, so it's, it, it's describing everybody in the city. It's trying to give this description that, that the whole town is involved. It says, The men of the city... The men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And then the King James, New King James substitutes carnally in there, adds that in there. Basically, that we may know them uh, sexually. Verse 6 continues, So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters and have not, who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since these, this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Okay. Lot has been living in Sodom and Gomorrah way too long, we can tell from this story. He understands hospitality. He does not understand the value of his daughters. And that's, this is a, so there are prescriptive stories in the Bible and there are descriptive stories in the Bible. When a story is prescriptive, that means that from that story, we take from that example something that, that we should also do in our lives. And then there are stories that it just describes what happened in the story. And this is descriptive. It's describing Lot in all of his, um, foolishness. I can't imagine what he's doing here. But anyway, at least he's valuing the strangers. And he says, okay, just take, take my daughters instead. But these guys are so violent, so they have such animosity for strangers and foreigners. Notice what happens in verse 9, what they say. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here. The, the word in Hebrew is basically, this one's a foreigner. This guy, this guy came as a foreigner to our town, and he keeps acting as a judge. He keeps trying to tell us what to do. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. We're going to do the same exact thing that we were planning to do to them. We're going to do that to you and more. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near 
to break down the door. Do you see how Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has recorded these two stories to give us a picture of what the judgment is all about? Later on in Jude chapter 7, Jude verse 7, I'm sorry, it says that Sodom and Gomorrah are brought forward for us as an exhibition, an example of those who will undergo eternal fire in the end. So it's an example of in the judgment, this is what's going to take place. These are uh, an example of what's going to happen to those who choose uh, to live their lives in animosity to Jesus and his law. Verse 10, it says, But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house, that being the angels with them, and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Now, this is mind-boggling to me. They've been struck blind, and yet they keep trying to find the door of the house. They are so intent on hurting these people, on doing them harm, that they don't even stop when a miraculous intervention happens and they're struck blind. They are intent on evil. It reminds me of the story we read about Noah, where it says that in his time, the thoughts and intents of every heart was only wickedness continually. So, what was it about Sodom and Gomorrah that made their actions so incredibly evil? Now, if you lined up a bunch of people here, uh, just people off the street, and asked, why was it that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? What do you think the main answer would probably have be? Homosexuality, Right? Homosexuality is usually the reason given. But can you see in this story that that is not the focus? Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible is very clear on homosexuality. And, and, and that's not the focus for today because that's not the focus of this story. What this story is focusing on is people who are being very hateful and hurtful and unhospitable to other people. And we see this recorded in the prophets. When the prophets look, they use Sodom as the example of wickedness, the example of evil. And when they talk about it, this is the type of language that they use. Ezekiel chapter 16 says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. This is what her sin was. Right? This is what her sin was. She and her daughter had pride and fullness of food an abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Isn't that amazing? So, so, so what it's pointing out here is that, that she had plenty. She had, she had fullness of bread. She had even so much that she was idle. And that's why all the men of the city have nothing better than to do than to, to mistreat these guys. And neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. What was that outcry that was coming up to the ears of God? Was it just the, the, the violence and wickedness of these men? Or was it those who were being oppressed by the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were crying out to God saying, God, you've got to give us justice. You've got to give us justice against these people. They're out of control. They're mistreating the poor. They're mistreating those who are in need. They're mistreating every stranger that wanders by the city. The New Testament writer says that Lot was daily vexed or troubled in his spirit by all that was taking place in Sodom. That's why he was sitting there at the gate, watching, hoping that he could protect somebody 
from being mistreated by those who were coming in as strangers. You know, it reminds me of what we get to celebrate this coming week. We have the Thanksgiving holiday that's coming up this, this week. And there are different uh, ways that historians point to the origin of Thanksgiving. It happened in 1619, possibly, that there was the very first Thanksgiving that took place. It was usually by those who, who crossed over from England to come here. But in 1620, the, the ship Plymouth arrived. And, and, and this is what we commonly look to for the origins of Thanksgiving, even though it wasn't necessarily called Thanksgiving, uh, but it was a, a Thanksgiving feast of, of sorts that took place, and we tend to look to it. The Mayflower comes across, they, they land at Plymouth, and they don't immediately disembark, but they stay on their ship. In fact, much of the winter, most of the, the, those who were on the ship stayed, on, the pilgrims stayed on the ship. And most of them, about half of them actually died of scurvy and other things during an, an intense winter. When March came of the next year, suddenly a couple of Indians showed up to them. One of them was named Squanto, who had been taken captive in England, had learned English, and he came back, and he's able to talk to them. And as he's talking to them, he begins to give them instructions about how to make corn uh, grow well, how to, how to grow corn, how to get uh, the the sap from the maple tree, and how to do these various things that, that would help them to survive the upcoming winter. And it was after they had finally gotten their first harvest, they're getting strengthened after a, a summertime of being able to eat, that they invited a bunch of the Native American Indians to come and to celebrate with them as they had this big celebration, a three-day feast with uh, tons of turkeys, and, and the Indians went and got a bunch of deer, so the very first Thanksgiving was a celebration of the hospitality, the friendship, the courtesy that was extended really by the Native American Indians as they came and, and embraced the pilgrims who, who came to Plymouth. That's what we get to celebrate this coming week. And yet, oftentimes, I don't know about you, but for me, it's turned into, well, let's get together with my family, let's eat as much as we can, and let's have a grand old time getting together with our family. And we forget this picture of reaching out to the stranger, to the, the person that we don't really know, that we tend to judge wrongly, that we, we reach out to those people and we draw them in and we invite them over. And I just want to say a huge thank you to those of you who do watch out for others in our congregation who, who need a place to be, a, a place, a place to, to celebrate Thanksgiving. And there are those of you who invite neighbors over, who invite people in your... Uh, sphere of influence over and I want to encourage you that's what Christians are called to do we're called to be hospitable we're called to be children of Abraham you remember that when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees he said if you were children of Abraham you would do the deeds of your father Abraham but you're not doing that instead you're trying to kill me one who's just trying to tell you the truth you would be hospitable. You would be embracing people. You would be drawing people in if you were really a child of Abraham. Now, Ezekiel does go on to mention in verse 50, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. And it doesn't negate the, 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 the nature of the sin that they were going to commit, but the focus is on their neglect of the poor and the needy. Now, this reminds me of how God described the judgment. So, so 
you have these three visitors. They come and, and Abraham sees them. And, and they're on their way to make a judgment about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is brought into that judgment to be a part of it, to understand what's going on. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week, the thankfulness we can have about the judgment. And then they go down to Sodom and they actually enter into the city and they experience how horrendous the treatment is that people are getting there in the city. And that's how uh, God exhibits this example of judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, it's fascinating because Jesus, when He describes the judgment, uh, one of the key ways that He does it is in Matthew chapter 25, talking about the sheep and the goats. Matthew chapter 25 uh, verse 33, it says, And he will sit, set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. This is on the great judgment day when all are brought before the throne of God. Then it says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come to me, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Just let that settle in for a second. In the judgment, in that moment, when we are, are there before the throne of God, in that moment, what He cares about is how we've treated the people around us. He's not there to ask you a bunch of theological questions. But He's there to want to know, has that theology changed your heart? You know, circumcision was a sign, a seal of the covenant that was to circumcise the heart. It was to transform who they were as people. It's the same with everything that we believe. We cling to the Bible. We cling to the Ten Commandments. We cling to everything that's revealed here because we believe that there is a God who loves us and who has promised to change our hearts to become like Jesus. And so in the judgment day, God actually makes His judgments based upon who we have become in His strength. Not by our works, but based on who He has uh, become through us. So He says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, and you took care of me. I was a stranger and you took me in. Verse uh, continues, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The Desire of Ages, uh, talking about this, points out that, that, actually we'll look at that quote in just a second, but right after this they say, when was it that we did this for you? We don't remember the time that we came to you, Jesus, and that we actually gave you a drink. We don't remember when we gave you bread. We don't remember visiting you in prison. We don't remember you being a stranger and that we actually reached out to you. But verse 40 says, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. He says, I'm the God who sees, I'm the God who hears, and I recognize the pain and suffering of every person on this planet. And when you minister to any person on this planet, when you make their life better, you're doing it for me, Jesus says. I, I take it as, as if you have done it for me. No matter how unworthy that person is, no matter what they look like, no matter what they smell like, no matter the actions of their life, when you treat that person with respect and love and care, I, I feel that 
It impacts me as if you've done it to me. Desire of Ages talking about this, page 637 says, Jesus represented the great judgment day's decision as turning upon how many points? One point. There's one key point in the day of judgment. One key thing for that decision. And, and we all want on that day to look up and say, this is our God. And, and to be knowing that, that, that He has, is, is, is inviting us into His kingdom. When the nations are gathered before Him, there will be but two classes and their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for Him in the person of the poor and suffering. Wow. I don't know about you, but that makes me pause and ponder my life and think, what am I living for? How does my, my theology, my understanding of God, how does my reading of the Bible, does it impact my heart? Am I allowing Jesus' promises to actually make me a blessing like He promised to do to Abraham? Am I actually making a difference in people's lives around me? And if I'm not, the answer is not for me to go out and to try harder in order to impact people's lives, but the answer is to get to know Jesus more. To take time every day to, like Abraham, build that altar, that family altar that he built. To take time to spend in prayer and reading the Bible, getting to know the God of love. And as you get to know Him, as you see His love, you will love like He loved. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that even if we were to sell all of our goods and to give them for the poor, and then we were to surrender our bodies to be burned, so to become martyrs, you give up everything you have, you sell it, you give all your goods to the poor, then you become a martyr for Jesus. It says it would profit you nothing if you don't have love. Love is a gift that can only come from Jesus. We only love because He first loved us. We only love by coming to gaze into the face of the One who sees us, who hears us, who loves us, who gave Himself for us. In his book, The Hole in the Gospel, Richard Cerns uh, paraphrases the next part of this parable that Jesus told. Uh, Richard Cerns is the president, or he was at least, of the U.S. chapter of World Vision uh, that's passionate about helping needs around the world. He paraphrases what Jesus says to the unrighteous, those who didn't clothe him, those who didn't help him when he was hungry. And he says this, For I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. Somehow Thanksgiving has turned into the time when we shop more than any other time. Somehow that's what Christmas has become. It's become about me. The opposite of what the Gospel is all about. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. James chapter 1 and verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. What does it mean to be religious? To visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The gospel is designed to change our hearts so that we draw close to everyone around us. We draw really, really close. That we, we, we do everything to reach out to them. That we're willing, even if we're 99 years old and we've just been circumcised, to go the distance in order to provide 
whatever somebody else needs in their life. I love this. It says, this is David Astrick. It was a, a, a tweet by the Arise Discipleship and Training Ministry. It says, come close, as close as you possibly can to the people around you. Build friendships. Love them hard, all the while showing them how beautiful, how radically different Jesus is from anyone else that they've ever known. (laughs) That's what we're called to do. We're called to love others the way that He first loved us. That is the message of all of Scripture. And it can only be done as we get to know our best friend Jesus better. Then he says this, The church is called to be distinct, not distant. There is a big difference. I'm afraid that sometimes we, we interpret our distinctness, our separateness, our come out of the world as we've got to stay away from people rather than coming as close as possible. Being different from everybody else in the world by the fact that we love like nobody else loves because we've got a friend inside of us who's loving people through us. That is the power of our message. To love like nobody else has loved. I was trying to think of different stories in my life that, that illustrate this. And one that came to mind was back when I was in college, I was down in Southern California going to a particular school, taking business. And in that time, uh, summer came up and my parents were like, hey, you need to get a summer job. And I didn't want to go work at our Adventist summer camp that year. Uh, they wanted me to go do some other ministry things and I really didn't want to do that. But then there was... Some people in our life, actually my, my sister-in-law's family, who reached out to us and, and reached out to my parents and said, hey, we'll take Zach for the summer. He could come work on our property. He could come live at our house. He could come just be with us over the summer. And I remember driving all the way up there, and this was a really good thing for me because it took me away from my friendships, the, the girl that I was dating there. It wasn't necessarily a, a good situation I was in. It took me 12 hours away from that all the way up to Napa, uh, California, up to Pacific Union College, where I was able to just have a quiet summer with a family who really loved Jesus. And I remember taking the time just to work with them, to be with them. And it wasn't necessarily the things that I would choose, but as a part of being in their house, I would have worship with them and I would experience the things that they were talking about. And looking back on that, I realized that God used their hospitality, their willingness to pull me in to make a huge difference in what I wanted for my life. And God can do the same thing through you. If you take the time to reach out to somebody, you may not see the immediate consequences of that. You may not see that it makes a difference right away. But you reach out to somebody and I'm here to stand as a living example and tell you, it will make a difference. If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and pitiful, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is only one. And the king will answer and say to them, one day he will say to you and he will say to me, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I'm challenged by what I read in the Bible. Because I read about a love that that extends itself, that that goes beyond what is comfortable, what is convenient, that, that goes out of its way in order to make others' lives better, even at the expense of my own life. 
And God, I just acknowledge this morning that that's not the kind of love that is natural to my heart. And this morning, if you're in the same place, if you're recognizing, hey, this is totally a foreign concept to the way that I live. I I just don't naturally reach out to people and love people in this way. And you recognize you need God's grace this morning. I just want to invite you to raise your hand and say, God, I want you to change my heart. I want you to circumcise my heart, to give me a, a, a soft heart, to love people the way that you do. God, we're raising our hands because we recognize that this is a life and death matter. That in the end, our eternal destiny hinges on the point of how we have treated the people around us. Not because there's any merit in that, but because there is a transformative power about believing in Jesus. Lord, forgive our unbelief in Your promises to make us a blessing to the nations. This morning, God, I believe that you're going to make us a bigger blessing, that you're going to make us more kind, more courteous, more helpful, that you are going to love people through us. Lord, it's the hour of the judgment. And Lord, we want to love people like you love them. And we want to do it in your strength. Lord, would you love people through us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.